If you have your Bible uh, with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 26. That's where we're going to be working this morning. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at the first uh, 15 verses. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I know it's entirely possible that there are people here who have no idea who this person is standing in front of you. Uh, My name is Adam Williams. I'm the planting pastor of Rivercrest Presbyterian Church, which is actually the daughter church of Columbia Presbyterian Church. So thank you for, you know, birthing us and stuff. Um, Our family's been here for about half of the Sundays for the last few months as we've transitioned into that role. So it's in so it's possible, and maybe even knowing my personality, probable that I have not uh, connected with everybody in this room on like a personal level um, yet, yet. Uh, by way of brief update, though, I figure since y'all are supporting the church, I should give you an update. Uh, we've had a very busy couple of months as we've really gotten into the work now of of people gathering, and so meeting people in the East Lexington area, and also raising the necessary uh, financial support for this new gospel work. Uh, we've had two like very large group gatherings over uh, in the Target area, where we have been, uh, I, I guess just to say, we've been positively overwhelmed at the response of people in the area over, over in East Lexington. And we've, we've had a very clear confirmation there is a need, a definite pronounced need for a for a Christ-centered, uh, gospel-proclaiming and uh, church who's faithful to the Scripture and to the commission of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be there, and it's clear that that need is there. We would love for you, I would, I would ask you to pray for us, especially for the next uh, few months. We've got a lot going on. There's, just a, you know, there's a ton of moving pieces anytime you're starting something new. And so our leadership team is going to begin meeting just this week. Our prayer and our hope is to launch our first three uh, community groups, life groups, small group, fellowship group, whatever you call groups. There's like a, a lot of different names for these things. We're going to launch those uh, in the next few weeks. And so we are, we're very prayerful that um, at this moment that we'll begin worshiping together in January of 2018. So there's a, a real goal for you to be, be praying for. We're excited to be a part of this body, especially in this season when y'all have got so much going on too. So we're just grateful to be here. Um, if you have other questions, I would be happy to, to share with you more about that, if, how you can partner with us both in prayer. And, uh, and if you live in Lexington, I'd, I'd love a shot to recruit you. <laughs> um, so there you go. We consider you all five-star prospects, if you were wondering. Uh, but for now, for now, for today, let's get into Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah 26, and we'll go first 15 verses. Jeremiah 26, beginning verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be they will listen. And every one turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. 
And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priest and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking. Uh, we thank you for not hiding yourself from us. And uh, we thank you that by your grace, you have made yourself known. Uh, that you didn't have to do that, but you've chosen to do that. And, and so we're thankful for that. Lord, we pray now that you would be at work amongst us by your spirit. Come and, come and give us ears to hear. God, give us eyes to see. Come and awaken our souls out of whatever apathy we seem to be trapped in. Come and, come and stir us up that we might live and move and walk as your people engaged in your mission, in your city, and in your church, Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. A uh, few years back, uh, when I was working in the electrical industry, and so if you don't, if you don't know, I, prior to being called into vocational ministry, I actually spent 10 years in commercial electrical contracting. So what we did most of the time was we built uh, churches, and we built schools, and, and we, we, we did that hard work. And so during the summer months, one of the things that we would do is we would hire uh, young men, usually college students, and usually they were college students who came from our, like the volunteer ministry that we were working with, and we'd hire them to come and help us with our summer projects. Now, um, these were school renovation jobs that had a very definite timeline to them. They had, they had a very set date for completion because the school buses are going to pick kids up and they're going to bring them to the school whether you're ready or not. So you need to be, you, you need to be ready or it goes bad for you. And so uh, I had one of these young men helping me on a school project. We were on a flat, a flat gravel roof uh, it was, we were up there for nine hours, basically a day. It was, uh, the average temperature that summer was 97 degrees. It was, it was awesome. Um, just the perf- most least conducive environment to train somebody to do something you can imagine. Um, and so we'd hire these guys and, uh, and, and w- w- basically what we, the nicest way we could do it, we were unskilled, right? That sounds nicer than incompetent, but they were, they were, um, 
totally unskilled, basically just uh, runners for our mechanics who were professionals. And so I had this one young man, and he's there helping me on this project, and uh, we bought him some tools, right? That was like day one, buy you some tools, and we're going to line you out and show you how to use the tools. Like this tool does this thing at this time if used correctly. And so we showed him how to do that, and we set him to accomplish this one portion of the project. And within within 10 minutes at best, uh, it was clear that this young man did not have a future in construction. Okay, I mean, I, it's just, he did not have that gifting. Um, it, was, it wasn't there. Uh, to, it was, he wasn't going to learn it. It just wasn't there. And so um, I watched this young man strain for really quite a while. Um, and he's, he's, he's like a little brother to me, so it was painful. Um, I watched as he strained with like great effort, uh, tremendous focus, even like intensity. You know, he's he really wants to get this right. It, just to, and all he was trying to do was loosen a conduit fitting, just the, the thing that puts two pieces of pipe together, uh, which in our industry is basically the equivalent of being able to walk. That you, if you can't do that, it's going to be difficult. And so uh, he's pulling every ounce of his might. All of his energy and effort is put into this effort to, to loosen this device. And, and he's actually the whole time... I'm, I only watched for a minute when I saw what he was doing. I wasn't that brutal. Uh, watch as he's pulling the wrong direction the whole time. And so what that means is that he was actually, instead of loosening the device, he's actually tightening it. And so he's making his job all the more difficult with each moment that he's standing up there sweating. Uh, that's, that's a little like the context into which Jeremiah is working in chapter 26. And really, in his his entire ministry. He's working with people who are striving, like they are really committed. They are working with great effort, with great focus, with tremendous, even furious intensity, as we'll see. They're working hard, trying the wrong way to do what they perceive to be is the right thing. And that's exactly what we see in the kingdom of Judah throughout this prophetic book. And And we see an expression of that uh, that very problem there in verse 4. Look, look back at verse 4 uh, real quick. The Lord says, he says, If you will listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. So we see here that the, that the people of Judah, okay, these are, these, are, these are the sons and daughters of Abraham, okay, by birth. That, that's who they are. And, and we see that uh, they, are, they are not walking according to God's law. And that's not a secret hidden instruction. It's been given to them. They have it there. They're just not walking in it. They are not listening to his voice. They are not seeking his will for their lives. They are, in fact, living now in this moment as in rebellion against, uh, against the express command of their heavenly father, who has been, and we know this of the people of Israel, we know this of the people of Judah, who, who God has been their shield. He has been their defender. He has been their liberator. And even, even, in, the, even in the wilderness, he's been the sustainer of these people. And so what God does is he sees this and he sends Jeremiah with this message uh, that, if, that if they have ears to hear, uh, this message should be terrifying for them because they understand the Shiloh context. They understand that reference a little better than we might. But the response that we see from the people here 
is telling of where their true loyalties actually lie. And we see that in verse 7. Look at, look at 7 there. He says, The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Okay, so what that means is that's all the people. That's, that's everyone. He's got the priests, the prophets, and all the people, all of those who had come from all the cities of Judah to come to the house of the Lord to worship. The priests, we, we know them. They are the folks who had the, they had the responsibility of interceding for the people. They're the ones who, who performed all the religious rites and the rituals. We think of them a lot of times in terms of sacrificial rites. So they're the ones who actually made the sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. And, and then we think of the prophets. The prophets were to be the ones who, who brought the word of the Lord, who gave it to the people. Uh, that, I love the meaning of that, the, the name there, even the root meaning of the word prophet in, in there. It means to bubble forth. And so the idea is, is that they're not supposed to create a new message. They, in fact, God doesn't need them to be creative at all. We don't see that from Jeremiah. He really sticks to the script. Um, he just needs to communicate the word of God, communicate my word to my people and that's their responsibility. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And so it's just supposed to spring forth out of them. It's supposed to like pour forth and flow from them, but, but they were failing. Because you see, in both cases, the priests and the prophets, they were, who were supposed to be leading the people of God into deeper union and, and deeper communion with the Lord, um, we see them leading. It, it's just that they're leading, they're leading in the wrong direction. They're constantly leading God's people away from him. They're striving with great effort to, to do that what they perceive is the right thing, but in the end, they're actually leading God further, or leading people further and further away from God. Look back at verse eight. That's where it says, uh, when Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. So here God's true prophet comes in. God's true prophet comes in and gives the word of the Lord to the people. And their response is not to listen and obey. It's to take up arms and pronounce a death sentence. Now listen, that's a different type of response than one typically looks for from a sermon. Like, I mean, selfishly, I really hope that's not what happens today. That I don't come down and you grab hold of me and, and, and drag me out into the street and say, this one's going to die. Like, I, re- I really hope that's not how this ends. Um, but that's precisely what happened in Jeremiah's case. He stands in the temple. This is a summary of, of chapter 7 uh, of, of Jeremiah, which I know y'all went through back in, I think, April, according to the website. And so, um, not redoing that one, but... He's giving this sermon in the temple and the people who are gathered in the temple to worship are the ones who laid hold of him and pronounced a death sentence. And it didn't stop there. Okay, this thing really did, it got ugly after that. In verse 10, in verse 10, we see that the officials of Judah heard these things. All right, so, so what that means is that the mob had grown both in, in size and in volume to the point where uh, as, as all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, and they're not there to congratulate him, right? They're not telling him how great a job he's done. Thank you for bringing this word. At this moment, they're gathered around him with every intention of ending his life They're gathered around him because, and this is what it said, he had prophesied against the city. 
You see, this is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. I, I, I know you've had awkward, awkward and uncomfortable situations in your life. We're with a generation of introverts, so most of our experiences are awkward at this point. But I, I, would, I would venture to say that you've never had a mob gather around you uh, prepared to take their life. And honestly, not knowing all of you all that well, I, I would just offer this. If you have had that happen to you, like you, you might need to process what happened there and, and figure out if maybe you didn't like, deserve it a little. Sorry, um, I, I don't know you well enough to say that type of thing to you, but I did, sorry. Um, what we see here is that these officials, all right, these are basically the, uh, the people of high stature, the people of prominence, the people that Jehoiakim, our, our king who is described simply in Second in Kings as saying that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. These are, these are the men to whom he would have looked as his chief advisors. So they're the people of prominence. You've got the priests and the prophets who are here, and we know that they're not leading well. You've got a wicked king we know who's not leading well. We know that the these people, the officials, are the ones giving him the advice. But in this case, they actually come in. They come in and they break up the mob and in all likelihood serve to save the life of God's chosen servant in that moment. And before they can even hear the charges that are being levied against Jeremiah, the mob has already pronounced and asked for that he receive uh, the sentence of death because he'd prophesied against the city. And so they're basically accusing him of blasphemy. They've elevated the city. They've elevated the temple to the place of prominence and they're, they're seeing their identity in those things. And so the priests and the prophets, they are leading the people. It's just that they're tragically leading them in the wrong direction. And so they are unrelenting in this moment and their desire for Jeremiah's demise. They are firmly committed uh, in this moment to the destruction of this man and his ministry. And Jeremiah's response, and after all of this, uh, when he's actually given the opportunity to speak, is very, is very powerful. And, and it reveals something to us, not only of his heart, but also the heart of God in sending him to begin with. So look back at verses 12 through 15. Let's, Jeremiah is there. He is, he's surrounded by the people. They, by all accounts, they've got their hands on him. They are not letting him go. The officials have now come down. They're setting up this sort of court. And here's what it says. Here's what he says in 12 through 15. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now therefore, mend your ways. Mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak to you all these words in your ears. Okay, so in the midst of this whole scene, in the midst of the mob, in the midst of the heat and the tension of that moment, in this moment that seems like, like he's about to, where, where his death is all but certain, we are given a glimpse of the heart of why God sent Jeremiah with this message to begin with. God has, God has seen his people, okay? He has seen them living as though they are not his people. He has seen the way of sin at work in them, that they are, uh, that they are following the course of this world, right? 
They're following uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the way Paul put that, right, in Ephesians 2. That's the way of the world. And so that's what God is seeing now when he's looking at his chosen people. He's seen these things because Hebrews 4.13 reminds us that God sees everything, that no creature, that no creature is hidden from his sight. And I love the way uh, the author of Hebrews kind of expands that. He says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the eyes to whom we must give account. That standing before the throne of God, we cannot hide anything. That there is no suit of fig leaves that you can weave that is tight enough to hide everything from the Lord. Okay, so God sees them. He knows them and he has felt this sting of rebellion as his set apart people have turned from him as those who have claimed his name have, have chased over the passions of the flesh, as they've carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and they've chosen to remain firmly children of wrath. And so rather than seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, they're seeking forth their little kingdoms. They're seeking first their own righteousness. And so like a parent, this is the idea that springs to my mind as I, as I think through how God is is seeing his children, as, as John just prayed when we did the baptism, that we're children of God. So when God sees his children sinning, we see our father there, seeing his children sinning, like a, like a mother who sees her daughter finding her identity in, in what people think of her. Uh, like a father who sees his son uh, striving ferociously for the things of this world, for the, for the fame, for the money, for the for the renown, for his good name. God, our Father, sees his children. He does not. He does not sit there helpless. He is not inept. He is not impotent to do anything about it. No, he is is moved to action. He is moved to action. And he chooses to send his servant, in this case, Jeremiah, sends his servant to come with a message. And so what we see is that in the face of the relentless sin of his people, God responds with this relentless hope for them, for forgiveness. And so this passage is a plea. It's a plea from our heavenly father to his children for them to turn from their evil ways, to turn from their sins and to embrace the beautiful grace that we would just call repentance that as his children and by his spirit, we can repent and turn from the sins in our lives. And since it's impossible to turn from something to nothing, since we don't work that way, we're always in some direction. And since we know that he is calling his people to turn from sin, that's pretty clear there. And since righteousness is the opposite of sinfulness, we know that God is calling his children to, uh, I would say this in the words of, that is going to come from Jesus' mouth later, to seek first the kingdom of God and to seek his righteousness. And so in the case of Jeremiah and our context here today, it's God calling for us to return to back, back to, back to what was said in verse four, to walk That's how how the New Testament constantly describes our life as our walk, because we're active, living, moving creatures that our walk would be reflective of his law. John John Calvin talked about uh, three uses of the law. The the first he says is this, and and these these are worth remembering for what it's worth. Uh, The first he says is the law is a kind of mirror. As in a mirror we discover any stains upon our face, so in the law we behold first our impotence, then in consequence of it, our iniquity, and finally, 
the curse as a consequence of both. And so what the law does, when we see God's law, is it, it serves as this perfect, spotless mirror, uh, revealing our sin, showing us our iniquity where we fall short. And, and it, it drives us to an understanding of our powerlessness in our own renewal and restoration, that we can't do it because we see how broken we are. We understand how, how, how broken our hearts are towards the things of the world because the law reveals it. So we understand our sin. We understand our lust. We understand our greed. We understand those things as being contrary to God. And so Paul points this out in Romans 3.20 where he says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that's one of the uses of the law just to show us where we fall short. That's the first, is a mirror. The second use of the law that Calvin points out is that is what he calls a bridle. And so he kind of drops into this equestrian language here and he says it serves by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. I, I love the way he, he uses words like denunciations. I wish we still did that. It makes you sound so much smarter. Um, but this is what that basically means. He says it serves to restrain sin. That, it's, that the law serves to restrain sin. The moral law which God has set forth as his perfect standard serves by what we would call common grace. That's grace that's, uh, that's there for everyone to restrain the spread and effect of sin. And so what that means is that while we look at our world right now and we see brokenness, we see conflict, we see, we see pain, we see suffering, we see death, that what I would tell you is that in the midst of all of that, our world is not as bad as it could be because God's law is actively restraining the sin of the world. In our world that seems hell-bent on destroying itself, God's law is still there. His truth, his truth still stands. And, and that's the second use. The law restrains sin. So that's the, that's the bridle. The third use of the law that Calvin points out, is, and he calls this the principal use, is it serves as a whip. It serves as a whip. Again, he goes with that sort of equestrian imagery. Whereas the bridle function restrains sin in the negative capacity, the whip function serves to spur God's people on to, to love and good works, right? He says it is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what that will of the Lord is, which they aspire to follow and to confirm them in this knowledge. So that what that means is that the law enables us to now seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because we're seeking after the things of God. And that it enables us to live our lives, that our walk might bring glory to our Father and our Creator. And this presents us with the reality that even the giving of the law itself, which Jeremiah is calling the people back to, which we treat so often as if it's, as if it's a burden for us to bear. What we understand now is that the law was given as an act of grace, that it was an act of God's mercy because it's there for our good. It was grace that he gave us a picture of what he desires for us. And so God's law is not just there to restrict us, but it's to spur us in the direction of our ultimate, our intrinsic, that built in from the factory purpose that we might live for his glory and that we might enjoy living in our restored union with him. And since we, since you and I, were not capable of restoring that broken relationship, since we couldn't work 
our way back to God. Since we can't build a nice enough uh, building, a church, a temple, since we can't clean ourselves up enough, wear the right clothes, get ourselves looking pretty enough, since we can never by anything within ourselves make ourselves acceptable to God, God sent us another prophet, a final prophet. And since there was no priest who was capable of offering a sacrifice that would actually atone for our sins and redeem us unto our God, he sent, he sent the true priest, the final priest. And since the people were surrounded by little kings, as we've even seen here with Jehoiakim, and as if we, can, if we wanted to, we could identify those kings in our world today. And some of them are not the ones that get all the, all the, all the airtime on CNN and Fox News. We've got a lot of little kings in our world that we worship and follow since we continue to seek after those things and since we know that they are intent on building their little kingdoms, God sent his final king. And so what we hear now is that our, our true prophet, our true priest, our true king, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that he beckons us now. He calls to us with the same message that God sent through Jeremiah. He calls us today to, to quit trying the wrong way to do the right things to quit trying to earn that which he has freely given to us. He calls us to to repent of our self-righteousness. He calls me to repent of the fact that tomorrow I will wake up and think that I'm I'm good enough. He calls me to repent of the fact that that before I get out of this building today, I'm going to be tempted to think that there is something that God needs from me, as if one who is complete and total in himself could ever need something from somebody like me that I'm going to be tempted to elevate myself to each one of those roles in my life, to those prophet, priest, and kingly roles, that I'm going to be tempted to try and be those for myself when God said, just turn and look at the one who I've sent to do this for you. Our patient father sees us just like that college student on the roof with me that summer, fighting with all his efforts, scratching and crawling to accomplish the task all the while When we do this, we make the job that much more difficult to complete. You see, God sees our fruitless struggle. He sees us pushing to the right. That's our tendency so often that if God calls us to walk to the left, our response is, I have a better idea. What if I I run to the right? Because that's more difficult, because that's something I know I can do. And so while God's calling us to walk in the area where the yoke is easy and the burden is light, we choose the thorns and the thistles of this world because then we get to earn something in our minds. Jeremiah 26, 13 today, he says, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent. He will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. You see, our God is a God of relentless hope. In Christ, he relents of the disaster of our condemnation, not because we didn't have to endure, but because he did. And so now we walk and we live in that freedom because Jesus, who knew no sin, right? Because he became sin for us that we might be made righteous. And he will not. This is the good news for us because I know I'm going to fail today that Jesus promises he will not lose one of his children. Not one of them will be lost. And so we walk in this world now. We walk by his grace. We walk in his mercy, no longer following the course of this world. 
but now as agents of reconciliation because we've received that good news. Because we can stand here with a child and we can put water on them and baptize them into the covenant family with all the hope and the promise that that brings. And we can raise our hands and say, yes, we're going to aid in this. And in the end, we know we're completely dependent on God for that. Completely dependent on his grace and his mercy. And so we serve him now as his agents of reconciliation. We serve him now joining him in the renewal of all things. And that's a good thing to do. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word to us. I thank you for the fact that you don't give up on people. Uh, I thank you for that right now, knowing that I need you. Knowing that I need your grace, Lord, that I need your mercy anew today. Lord, I'm so thankful that you do not turn your head in shame from me when I let you down, but that your relentless hope holds on tightly and refuses to let me go. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk in the liberty that that provides. Not a foolish liberty, not a licentiousness to go and do what we want to do, but a freedom now to seek first your kingdom, to seek first your righteousness. Lord, let that be our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.